You're listening to the Pops on Hops podcast, where we listen to some pops, drink a little hops, and I get to hang out with my pop. I'm Abigail Hummel. And I'm Barry Hummel, and we want to welcome you to episode 39, where I got to pick the album, and technically Abigail got to pick the beer, though I'm not sure that really... Eh, a little bit of a toss up there on that. We're going off format a little bit recently. Oh, well, <laughs> we, I was on a recent vacation and I found a spectacular brewery. And so I did the old grab some can thing. And since we're doing this via Zoom, I thought it would be smart to rate those beers from that delightful brewery up in Boone, North Carolina. But today's album is the debut album by the band Jellyfish entitled The Belly Button, one of my all time favorite albums. And one of my first selections that we're going to review that was recommended to me by my old friend Jack Cornell who has been a guest on the podcast in the past. And as far as the brewery, I guess I get to do that one too. As I mentioned before, we're going to be reviewing three beers from Boonshine Brewing Company, which is in Boone, North Carolina. And it's a delightful brewery. And uh, for foodies, it had a spectacular menu. In fact, on that vacation, it was one of the best meals I had on the entire trip. And the beer was super, super good. So hopefully these three that I managed to uh, purchase from the cooler on my way out the door will hold up compared to the ones that I had while I was in town. (laughs) And so we're looking forward to that. Well, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to try these. Why don't we crack into this first one? And then you can tell me a little bit more about jellyfish. Absolutely. So the first one we're going to have is called South Fork. It's a grapefruit goza. And on the can, it says, starting as a tiny stream with its headwaters near Blowing Rock, the beautiful South Fork of the New River flows through the county towards our brewery in East Boone. From there, you can jump in a tube or kayak and float all the way through Virginia and eventually to the Gulf of Mexico. Our South Fork Goza is brewed with 100% North Carolina barley from Carolina Malt House and fresh grapefruit. It's the perfect beer to throw in the tube cooler for the ride. So relax and enjoy the slow motion views of mountains, pastures, and river life as you sip a tart and refreshing South Fork Goza from Boonshine. Wow, that was a lot of reading. It was. Let's crack this puppy open. Cracking it open. Uh Uh-oh, I just sprayed all over the gear again. Oh, God. Every time we do a Zoom. I know. About every three episodes, I have to go get a new computer. (laughs) How about you just get a tarp or something? Why don't I open it further away from the gear? That's another option. So it is a little bit of a hazy, cloudy-looking beer, kind of a golden color. I have poured it into a glass. Abigail's making a tart-looking face. It's so good. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It certainly is refreshing. It's very tart up front. Mm-hmm. I made that puckering face, as you could see. It hits you really fast, but then it kind of finishes off with more of a graham crackery, malty sweetness that I'm really enjoying. You know, it's not a pithy taste of grapefruit. No. You taste the grapefruit flavor yes. without all that extra... Uh, the part of the grapefruit that's generally not the best to eat. You know what I mean? And you know, I have struggled with grapefruit beers in the past because of that. It depends on, I think, whether you use the whole grapefruit or whether you use just the juice. But I'm looking at their description on Untapped, and they say, thanks to Daniel at New River Distilling for the amazing grapefruit oil. Ha! So South Fork Grapefruit Goes is light and refreshing with a small addition of grapefruit oil to complement the traditional lemon sourness of the Goes style. So they've done something maybe a little different with that. And I didn't know that there was a distiller up there. So now I have to go back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very impressed with how quickly the sour flavor leaves the palate. That is very, very fast. Crushable to say the least. Yes, definitely. Wow. So that's really good. So while we're working on that, and by the way, we're working on tall boys. So let's all be careful. Everybody be careful. We've got three tall boys in the house. First of all, you be careful. I always am. So let me tell you a little bit about jellyfish. So jellyfish was 
a band that had a very short but influential career in the 90s. The original members of the band were two friends who met in San Francisco, Andy Sturmer and Roger Manning. And they had been in another band previously called Beatnik Beach, spelled B-E-A-T-C-H, oddly. B-E-A-T-C-H, Beach. Think of like the Beatles cheating on the spelling of their word. So you can already see where this is going, right? Yeah. So they started writing together in that band. And eventually they decided to leave and form their own band. And by the way, they met in high school. Oh, wow. So they'd been playing together for a long time. When they formed their new band, they picked up a, another member of the band from a band three o'clock that also broke up, Jason Faulkner. So they were the core members of the band. Now, Andy Sturmer is an interesting guy. He was a drum player, but also the front man. Huh. So one of the things that was really interesting when you watch uh, live recordings of them or you watch some of their performances, he's a stand-up drummer. He stands at the front of the stage with a stand-up drum kit and plays and sings like a lead guitarist would. Oh, that is interesting. So it's a fascinating thing to watch. So they released their first album, Belly Button, in July of 1990. Jack Cornell pulled me aside one day at work and goes, you have got to hear this album. <laughs> and he didn't really tell me much about it. He just said, you got to go get it. So I did. I went to School Kids Records in Chapel Hill, which was my go-to place for new music, and bought this CD. And I have loved this album from the first time I played it. If somebody said, you're on a desert island, you have to take 10 albums, this would make the list. That's how much I like this album. Wow. I had an interesting exercise with this because I knew a lot of the lyrics, but I hadn't really paid attention to the lyrics. So I found that a lot of the lyrics have a little darker themes than the music would ever tell you. Mm -hmm. They had a follow-up album called Spilt Milk that's a little different than this. I like it. I don't like it as much. It's a little heavier musically. Had more of the influences of bands like Queen and Supertramp as opposed to the Beatles or the Beach Boys. I'll throw some acknowledgement that some of the stuff on the album we're going to listen to sounds like the Beach Boys, especially uh, Harmonies. But that was it. They had two albums. Wow. But in that time frame, they also became so influential that they worked with Ringo Starr. Huh. They wrote several songs for an album that Ringo Starr released in 1992 called Time Takes Time. Only one of those made the album, and it's called... I don't believe you. sounds a lot like the Beatles, or I would make the argument that maybe a little more even like the Monkees, hmm. some of that, the way that's played. And that's those guys from Jellyfish singing backup. That's so fun. So they were on a very meteoric rise among the music community. Their albums never really charted very high. You know, on the U.S. top 200 Billboard charts, it only peaked at 124, for example. Oh, wow. I don't have the actual data here, but I do know that their albums tended to chart higher in the U.K., but again, they only had the two albums and then they broke up because Andy Sturmer did not like the pressure of being a front man. 
And I guess he was also difficult to work with as a writing partner. So there was some mm. conflict between he and Roger Manning. And so after two albums, they broke up. Wow. Uh, Roger Manning has formed another band and has continued to perform. But Andy Sturmer has kind of fallen out of the music business entirely. So anyway, here's this pop jam we're going to play. or That's my opinion. I haven't heard yours yet. That to me is, you know, like I said before, one of my all-time favorite albums from a band that uh, is pretty much gone. But boy, for a hot minute, this was all the rage for me. That's a little bit of background on the band. Not too much else to discuss with them. What are your just uh, sort of initial thoughts on the album? I am just obsessed with this album, Deb. Oh, great. I think it maybe has entered my canon of favorite albums ever as well. That is fantastic. I think it is brilliant. I think it is bizarre. And I can't figure out how they fit so many different musical styles and what to me sounds like so many different musical influences into this album at first when you noted it was their first album I was like well how could that be how could they have such a defined sound in their first album but then I realized they really don't have a defined sound they sound fantastic and they're playing their instruments beautifully but the variety of styles on this album the variety of instrumentation they use is truly mind-blowing so I kind of feel like they used this album to figure out what their sound was going to be as a band. And that's why it's even a little sadder that they, they only made two albums because I would have loved to see what else they could have done. I think everything they try on this album, they do masterfully though. So clearly they're very talented and we're going to take a lot of trips to the Abigail Hummel School of Speaking Smartly about music today because Uh-oh. so many of these songs, upon hearing them for the first time, I was able to either if not immediately identify another song that I thought they sounded like, at least identify an artist I thought they sounded like. Okay. And sometimes it's not the whole song. Sometimes it's just like a few measures, but I only chose the ones to share with you that I felt I had the most evidence for. So we're going to do that with three songs, but just know that the first time I heard this album, I was hearing other songs in my head, left and right, which was a very cool experience too. So from my perspective, I had a similar reaction when I heard it, but remember I was a huge Beatles fan. So I put it on all these years ago and I listened to it and I go, wow, this really sounds like the Beatles. Now I've never sat and dissected it. Mm -hmm. I just always in my mind thought, oh, this sounds a lot like the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I'm thinking of say from Sgt. Pepper's through, I'll say Abbey Road, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of a, a couple of things from Revolver. But I would compare this album when you say, oh, it's a whole bunch of musical styles kind of put together in a mishmash. That's the White Album. That's what the yeah. Beatles did on the White Album, right? There's no consistent musical style on the White Album. It demonstrates a wide variety of skill sets and a wide variety of songwriting styles. And I feel like this album does exactly that, but it doesn't come off as just the White Album. It's a little more cohesive than the White Album, and it pulls elements from that sort of late Beatles career. So I don't have things to share with you. I'm just going to reference things from songs that as I was going through this, I was like, oh, that's clearly the such and such of a sound from such and such mm-hmm. of a song. And it might be like you're saying 15 seconds in the middle of a song. Yeah. We may not even play all the clips that include these, but I'll talk about them as we come across them because I think it's really interesting. And I heard the Beatles in here too, but I also heard influences of like grunge, for example, 
couple of these songs sound very, very grungy to me. There is a ton, a ton of very 80s sounding synth in here. So I think their influences go well beyond the late Beatles. I mean, I heard every decade between the Beatles and when they released this album represented. Well, and you said grunge. Yeah, and grunge was happening around this same time. It was just barely starting. That's a chicken and an egg thing. Sure. For a band that it was a musician's darling of a band they had much more sway within the music community than they did from consumers it's sort of the way i would think of that it makes sense i mean i could maybe identify one song on this album that i would identify as charting well and everything else i can't envision doing well on the charts so the album spawned the singles the king is half undressed which reached number 19 on billboard's modern rock chart and number 39 on the uk singles chart that is why, which reached number 11 on Billboard's Modern Rock chart. Oh, wow. Baby's Coming Back, which reached number 62 on Billboard's Hot 100 chart and number 54 on the UK singles chart. And I Want to Stay Home, which reached number 59 on the UK singles chart. Hmm. So again, they had singles. They were not big time hits, you know. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, the album as a whole was not a big time charting album. But I, I can't imagine why listening to this album that it didn't do better than it did. But I think, like I've said before, among musicians, it was, how do you work with Ringo Starr, one album in? Yeah. You have to be influential in the music business to have that kind of cachet to work with Ringo Starr in 1992. Yeah. But I kind of get why they didn't do well commercially, though, because even within songs, you'll have very disparate sounds. The songs change a lot throughout Even whole instrument suites will change out in the middle of the song. Yeah, right. And we'll talk about those in more detail when we get to the songs. But I can understand how from kind of a music consumer's perspective, they don't know what they're getting with this. With any given song on this album and with the album as a whole. Now, I love that because I'm me and you love that because you're you, right? But I completely understand why they didn't do so well commercially. I totally get it. Do I think it's justified? No, but... The whole album has an interesting, consistent vibe to it. Yeah. So I know what you're saying about the wide variety of different musical styles and changes within songs. I know you love that. A song completely takes a left turn in the middle. Mm -hmm. All that makes sense to me. But the album as a package is so good. I personally think this is a flawless album. I had to find a least favorite because that's the exercise we go through. Mm -hmm. Really rough time doing that. But I don't really have a least favorite on this album. And I had one of these problems like you typically have more often than I do, which is I could have put six or seven in my top three. Yeah. So I ended up with the ones that I tend to catch myself singing most frequently. That's how I ended up determining that. That makes sense. So shall we start the track by track? Yes, let's do it. All right. Well, why don't you lead us on a uh, musical journey as only the Abigail Hummel School of Speaking Smartly About Music can do? I will. So let's start with track one, and that's called The Man I Used to Be. Just a picture on your mother's mantelpiece 
chose to fight the good fight and time to fail into battle in your shadow in your So when I put this album on and heard this song, immediately I was convinced that this was going to be my favorite song on the album. And it didn't even make my top three. Wow. So this is just a good indication of where we're going from here on this album. I love it. So it starts off with a big organ solo. Yes. Because of course, why not, right? <laughs> why wouldn't you just start your album with a big booming organ solo? It makes no sense, but they pull it off. And then the part you heard, I actually heard two other songs in this. So the bulk of it, I heard Never Tear Us Apart by NXS. And I will play a little bit of that. All right. But the heavy guitar reminded me of I Want You, She's So Heavy by the Beatles. So I'm going to play a little piece of both of those. But I'm going to go back to the man I used to be in the middle because there's a specific section I want to highlight that I think sounds like the Beatles song. So let's start with Never Tear Us Apart by In Excess. Don't ask me what you know is true. Don't have to tell you. I love your precious heart. So the elements I heard in both of those songs were... I don't know if this is technically considered reverb, but the recording style that makes them sound further away from the mic, where they kind of sound like they're singing through a filter or something. I thought that was similar. The synthy keyboards I thought were similar. And then even the melody, I think, is quite similar in those two songs. And there is that driving string section on that. You were talking about, let's start off with a big organ, you know, which is an odd choice. And here you have a big kind of screaming string section. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It also is an odd choice to drive the song. So there's that similarity, too, of an odd orchestral instrument kind of driving the tune. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to go back to the man I used to be just to hear about 10 seconds of the part that I think sounds like I Want You, She's So Heavy by the Beatles. So again, we're listening for the do, do, do. Okay, now we're going to the Beatles. I want you, parentheses, She's So Heavy, off of Abbey Road, which is one of the albums that you mentioned earlier. So those are almost exactly the same three notes. 
and they sound very similar to me. And the first time I put in this album, I immediately, immediately made that association. So I knew that that was a good candidate for the Abigail Hummel School speaking smartly about music. Well, here's my entry on that song. I mean, we could do this all day, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But let's do it on this song and get it out of our system. And then we don't have to play some eight tracks. So go find, you were just on Abbey Road. Yeah. Go pull up Oh Darling. Oh Darling. So that striking guitar that drives that song is a technique used in The Man I Used to Be. Now, last one, because we'll be here seven hours if we continue to do this, but <laughs> can you get to the bridge on The Man I Used to Be, the musical bridge? So that crackly sound, that little like uh, it's an old timey record player thing. Mm -hmm. Go to the Beatles White Album and pull up Honey Pie. Wild Honey Pie? Nope. Honey Pie after Revolution Number One. She was a working girl, north of England way. Now she's hit the big time. In the USA. That's all you need. I mean, we can't do this on every song, but every song is going to be like this. They've lifted elements from all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. and constructed these oddly constructed songs that lift a little thing here that's reminiscent, a little technique here. There's a theremin on here that with the Beach Boys used in Good Vibrations. They do Beach Boy style vocals on something. They mm -hmm. do French horn. It sounds like Penny Lane. They do whatever it is. It's a mishmash of stuff, not just from the Beatles, but from lots of, like you were saying, all kinds of different musical influences. And they rammed it all in to this what i think is a piece of genius i think this album's a piece of genius mm -hmm. we won't have time to delve into all this but for anybody who's listened that's never heard this album pick it up and listen to it because it's really a great musical exploration on tons of different musical styles like 25 mm -hmm. years of musical styles rammed into one 10 song efficient cd yeah yeah, it's fantastic. So as I revealed, this is not in my top three, but gosh, is it up there? I think it's a fabulous start to an album. I think it gives you a great idea of what you're getting yourself into. Not just because they start with the organ. There's a solo, like some of these songs have pretty lengthy guitar solos, organ solos, right. you know, all kinds of different solos. I just think it's a fabulous, fabulous beautiful song the crackly part that we played it occurs two-thirds of the way through the song they just break the song in a piece and they play that weird section and then they resume the song that's a great example of what you're talking about yeah yeah not in my top three either i like the theme of the song we didn't touch on what the song's actually about it seems about a father who maybe is a veteran who's abandoned his family and is kind of regretting it throughout the course of the song it's a father who's looking at his kids from afar mm. he's describing himself in a photo because that's the only way his kids see him now mm-hmm 
So again, when we talk about a kind of an odd, fun presentation of music, and then maybe a little deeper song there when you look at the lyrics. Yeah. All right. Moving on to track two. And track two is called That Is Why, which I think you noted was one of the singles, right? That is correct. my second favorite song on the album well you're one behind me this is my favorite nice yeah i i love this song the part that i played i love and i tend to love this in songs when there's a little bit of instrumentation then it goes silent and then there's a little bit more instrumentation that goes silent it's like putting a cliffhanger into a tv show right it like just keeps you waiting for what's going to come next I think one of the reasons I like that is because it tells you how tight the band is. Now, I know in a production studio, that's easy to accomplish. Yeah. But then you go out live and play that. You have to be super tight as a band to hit the silence. That's true. I think bands that can't do that wouldn't put it in their songs. Yeah. If that makes sense to you. You wouldn't put that in there if you weren't able to do that live. I think that tells you the strength of the band when somebody puts a complete musical break in a song. You have to stop and restart on a head count right? Because your drummer can't tell you when to restart. Right. Beautiful harmonies in this. You touched on their use of harmonies before. I think they're really on display in this song. Some of my favorite parts of these songs are in the harmonies they produce. And I think the singer who you mentioned his name before, and I didn't write it down, who's also the drummer. Andy Sturmer. I think he's a fabulous singer. I can't like name off the top of my head. Band headliners who I find their voices actually to be beautiful who are men the lead singer of in excess michael hutchins is on that list and now the lead singer of this band is on that list i think his voice sounds fantastic and he's easy to understand he doesn't have sort of a garbling way of singing his vocals are forward in the production very easy to understand what he's singing very easy to sing along with and the fact that his backup vocalist it almost sounds like barbershop quartet like is is the first thing that comes to mind because they really are just such clear pure sounds that they're producing with their voice and it's not fair to just call them barbershop quartet because obviously they're producing very interesting music with their instruments as well but they really really have a mastery of their vocal instruments and i just love that i love that so much and that's the main three guys the three guys i mentioned before right it's andy Sturmer, who's basically the lead singer and then roger manning and jason faulkner who uh, was their bass player that they picked up from that other band and to me that's beatles harmony we're going to compare that later on to beach boys harmony because there's a different <laughs> Interesting. Well, they are styles and they are different. I find this to be one of the more pure Beatles songs on here. The drumming is clearly influenced by Ringo, even to the delayed fill. 
and there's a lot of drumming in this that you would say, oh, that sounds very much like it came right off the White Album. There's also the guitar, where you hear solos on this, is very reminiscent of George Harrison guitar solos. Mm. Not too complicated and a little bit of slide in it. And I love the way this song is structured. So that's why it's my favorite on the album. It is, again, another deep song, right? Because it's really about a cheating partner so the the lyrics are a little bit deeper than this kind of pop gem that you're listening to. Yeah. Like you said before, he's easy to understand. So it's easy to sing along. It's easy to learn the lyrics. But having not read them, you don't get the entire depth of it until you actually put it on paper and read it out. Right. And so, again, this is another deep song with a beautiful, beautiful melody. And I really love this song. I think the melody almost sounds Spanish or Latin to me and there's a song later where they have like a very clearly latin influence especially the beginning of this it sounds just slightly latin influence to me and it's just another element that throws a wrench into what you expect a typical pop song to be it keeps my brain engaged while i listen to this album and i think that's right part of the reason why i love this album so much i cannot just let this be background music because it keeps my brain so engaged. I think part of that might be the musical changes, right? Oh, yeah. These guys are not afraid to change gears one, two, three times in a song or add an instrument that you don't see coming. Right. I think that's what keeps you engaged, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like a car shifting gears. You can't just have it as background or not be thinking about it. I play this album to listen to this album or drive. You know, I do it a lot driving. I don't play this to try to work to. Right. No, no. I have the same reaction you do in the sense that I have to really be engaged with it when I listen to it. Well, we're two songs down. Should we rate the beer? Gotta rate the beer. It hadn't really warmed up too much. It's a little no. warm, but I'm having the same reaction to it now. It's Me so too. clean. It's so good. The fruit is forward, but not dominant or overbearing like some grapefruit flavored beers can be. Yep. I have to give this one a four. I'm going to give it a 4.2. Two five. Yes, I'm hugely a fan of this one. Everything you said is accurate. It is clean. It is refreshing. It really hits you with a punch of sour, but the speed with which that leaves your palate, I haven't figured out how it can do that. And we can't ask because we're not on location. And we can't ask, exactly. My tongue is a little more acquired to it now, but I was getting a little sweetness at the end of the sip. I'm not getting that so much anymore, but that was a nice element when I first cracked the can open. I don't know if that's... I didn't get a lot of sweetness from it. I really got that tart flavor mm -hmm. that kind of withered relatively quickly and just let yeah. the clean taste. That's an easy drinking beer. That's a good way to describe it is withered. I can taste it on all the different parts of my tongue and then I can just like feel the flavor like leaving my tongue. Isn't that weird? No, we both describe the same thing. I know, but we are both, as we say, internally consistent. So I'm going to move on to the second selection of the day, which is called Squatchy Ale, S-Q-U-A-T-C-H-Y Ale. And yes, it is a Bigfoot themed inspired looking label. <laughs> I'm going to read because we were somewhere where there was no information on the cans. I think it was Becker Brewing in our wacky episode that was yes. up a few weeks back. Those Becker Brewing cans, they barely had the name on them. But now we're doing Boonshine and Boonshine hired a big time writer, I can just tell, because the Squatchy has the following notes. A talented brewer, a vicious striker, and Appalachian Football Club's new official hype man, Squatchy, is simply a misunderstood being. That's exactly why we asked him to collaborate on AFC's official stadium beer with us. 
Light, crisp, and downright refreshing, this ale is brewed with North Carolina-grown wheat and distilled with citrus oil. So if you see Squatchy storming the pitch, don't be afraid. He's only here to swap your yellow cards for yellow cans. A beautiful beer for the beautiful game. I don't know what that all means. Uh, now I'm looking at it, it, says the Appalachian Football Club. You can see it on the can. Yeah. So this must be a local soccer team up there. And this is the stadium beer. I knew none of that history when I bought this in the store. This is so funny to me. Trade your yellow cards for yellow cans. That's hilarious. I love that. It sounds like this is sold in the stadium, right? AFC's official stadium beer. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's very cool. Clearly at the brewery as well. All we know is this is an ale. We know nothing more. I'm going to do the obvious thing. I'm going to go to... Pour it into a glass. Untapped. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Well, I did. I poured it into a glass, but I'm also going to go to Untapped. By the way, we are not sponsored by Untapped. Untapped, why don't you sponsor us? And despite the fact that they don't sponsor us, I did find some information about this beer on there. It's a wheat beer huh. described as an American pale wheat. It's an Americanized version of a Hefeweizen. These beers range within the pale to golden range in color. They're reminiscent of a Hefeweizen in appearance, unless they're filtered. This appears to be unfiltered because it is a little bit cloudy. So this one, it sounds like, also uses citrus oil in it. Yeah. So they really like their essential oils, I suppose. They must have a great working relationship with the distillery. Mm. There is an interesting thing that happens with this one. So It's quite hoppy. At the end. Yeah. After a while. So I was going to say, oh, it drinks very much like a Hefeweizen. As I was starting to say that, it changed in my mouth. I know. I had another sip. And it, you get the ale qualities at the end of that. I like that. A little smooth and banana-y at the beginning. Hefeweizens typically have flavors of banana and clove. I feel like I get that only slightly at the beginning. I don't get much clove. Mostly banana for me. Yeah. And very early in the sip. and then... But it's subtle too. And they do say that those flavors come from the yeast and they did use German yeast. So we would expect that to be there. It's not like they use an American yeast. I don't really get much citrus. It really is just mostly hoppy, but it's not bitter. Not at all. Not it's very at all. easy to drink. So when you talk about a beer drinker's beer, this is the kind of beer drinker's beer that I can handle because it tastes like a beer. It's hoppy, but it doesn't quote unquote blow your face off. Is that the phrase we use? I think it's rip your face off. Oh, rip your face off. Every time we say it, we misquote Jack. Jack Cornell, who, by the way, suggested this album to me so many yes. years ago, is responsible for the term rip your face off, describing an IPA. But I agree with you that it tastes like a beer, Yeah. but you don't have to work hard to drink it. Right. Some of the hoppier IPAs, especially the West Coast IPAs, scare people off. Yeah. We had a conversation at Walking Tree about how young people don't tend to prefer those style of beers. They prefer styles that are fruitier or have or a little sweeter or whatever and don't like the beer flavored beer. I've heard other people say that the beer flavored beers are making a comeback, that there's now a rebound effect where more people are going to lagers and simple pale ales and things that taste like beer without it being rip your face off quality. <laughs> Interesting. By the way, if you're ever in the area of Boone, North Carolina, this place, it's a must-stop location. Yeah. It is one of the best breweries I've been to. You know, normally you go, a place makes great food. You go, oh, they make great food and beer. Right. And a place that makes great beer, the food is the afterthought. This place did both exquisitely well. Let's get back into the music. Let's get back into it. I need to hear some more jellyfish, I have to tell you. Track three 
is called The King is Half Undressed. And this is the first song that I identify a strong grunge-esque sound to. So listen for that in this clip. sounds like so many of the pop punk influenced bands that I listened to in middle school. His voice sounds angrier in this one. There's a driving drum beat that goes throughout the chorus. It makes it sound really powerful. And this is my third favorite song on the album. Wow. So this one is on the cusp for me. I, I kind of put it in the four slot. It was flirting with being in the top three. I don't hear grunge only because when I think of grunge, what I always think about is it's a little bit of dissonance and a little bit of um, this to me is too melodic to be grunge. And I use Nirvana as my baseline for that. I'll tell you the funniest thing I ever saw. So I'm not a huge Pearl Jam fan, but I deserve to be. I probably should give them a second look, right? <laughs> but I was not a big grunge fan. So I didn't really get into Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And I think Stone Temple Pilots would be in that category. I remember just thinking when you heard a Pearl Jam song, like none of the instruments sounded right to me. And I was watching the Grammys years ago and Pearl Jam comes out and they do a song. And then Neil Young joins them on stage and they played Rockin' in the Free World with Neil Young. And they played a kick butt version of that song. And I said to myself, oh, they really do know how to play the instruments. <laughs> of course. So here's the thing. It's sort of like Picasso. Learn how to paint classically and then deconstruct that into a new art form. Okay, yeah. so I have a little more respect for the grunge movement in the sense that they knew how to play the instruments and they deconstructed that and did a different style of music. Mm -hmm. When I listen to this, I don't hear that. This is too melodic to my ear to compare to some of the stuff that I would hear from Nirvana in the 90s. This is just a harder edge, a harder rock song. But that drums that you're listening to, that's so Ringo. Hmm. That whole backfill, I could find you that drum riff. It's that much of a match. I think he's angrier because this song seems to be like two people who have gotten together and then decided <laughs> it wasn't such a good idea. That's to me what the song's about. Yeah. He's half undressed because they got together and didn't finish their evening. So that is why I think he's angrier vocally. <laughs> <laughs> I read the lyrics for this song before I read the lyrics. I was assuming it was kind of like an emperor's new clothes. Yeah, 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 maybe yeah. Maybe retelling. But like, because he sounds so angry, I just assumed there was some sort of deeper meaning or some metaphor. And then I actually went and read the lyrics and no, there's not. It really is just what you said. Like, it's a story about two people. So that's kind of funny to me. Right. It comes off as Renfest and it's really not. It's about two people who didn't have a great night. 
Well, and I was, well, yeah, but, but when I saw the title and started thinking of the Emperor's New Clothes, I was like, oh, it's about lying politicians. It's about corrupt. Oh, I see what you're saying. Leadership. I thought it was going to be a metaphor for all that. And it simply was not. I guess the only reason you think the the use of the word king. Yes. You read it and I, there is no king in no, the story. No. Right. That's the thing. It's like, he thinks he's the king. And I yeah. think that's where the anger comes from. He's like, well, this should be happening. Why is this not happening? happening that's the only interpretation of the word king right yeah if you don't mind though play the musical bridge in there real quick if you can find it Welcome to the Beach Boys Network. Huh. If you don't hear the vocals from Good Vibrations in that or songs along those lines, you're not listening well because that's exactly. And that's what I said earlier. Oh, that sounds like Beatles harmonies. This sounds like Beach Boys harmonies. And there's a difference. And they perform both equally well. They know their influences and they mimic them beautifully in bits and pieces. Yeah. It's like a little toss in. Yeah. Right. It's not the bulk of the song. Right. It's a wink and a nod to say. Hey guys, we know what we're doing here. Yeah. And I love it. I love it. Yeah, this is a great song. The other thing I wanted to say about the chorus is I think part of the reason that made me think of grunge is because you do not get a break for the entire chorus. The entire chorus just goes so hard. There is no break. The drum is going at the same beat and the same pace for the entire chorus. I feel like I throw around wall of sound a lot and I don't think this necessarily falls into that, but just the fact that it just keeps coming at you at the same pace for the entire chorus is a little overwhelming. I think that is the grungy element that I pulled out of that. I don't think it's wall sound because wall sound to me is so many instruments playing so loud that there's no distinction to it. It's just a blur. It's like white yes. noise almost. Whereas you get every instrument here. So I would like you to pull up now on your, oh, uh, boy. do this one more time. Go to Ticket to Ride, please, by the Beatles. It's on the Help album. So that's one example of that kind of Ringo style of drumming that's featured in this song. Mm. That's not the perfect one. That's the first one I thought of. I mean, there's another one that's going to match this even better. But I just want to point out that that sort of counterpunch drumming style that Ringo has, they're mimicking that very well in here, which is probably why they were recognized among musicians for what they accomplished here. And that's why you're going to work with a Ringo. This guy's able to do Ringo style drum work, by the way, standing up and singing. Yeah. Two things Ringo never had to do. <laughs> never. He never stood up in his life. Let's move on to track four. Track four is another one of the singles you mentioned, I Want to Stay Home. It's only six o'clock When my day begins There is always my alarm clock 
This to me sounds so painfully of the 80s. Painfully, you say. <laughs> I like the song, don't get me wrong, but it is one of the slower songs on the album. It's probably in my bottom third. It's just that like mix of synthy keyboard and then like almost bongo drums that just sounds like the incorporation of world music and into like the 80s hits and it sounds like a lot of stuff we've reviewed on the podcast if i'm honest we're sort of wavering into like genesis phil collins you're making me feel bad about my youth (laughs) (laughs) my young adult years i should say it's a fine sound it's just that i feel like this is all there was in the 80s you know (laughs) not all there was but everyone did a little bit of this everyone experimented with this type of sound even david bowie right i kind of retconned that i wasn't a big fan of that album as a result yeah but i don't have any problems with the song i don't know that i have a top third middle third bottom third with this record i have like a top two thirds that are all kind of equivalent and then maybe a bottom third and even that's tough i like this song I know what you're saying. It does. Now that you've said, oh, it sounds like the 80s, I could totally hear that. But when I listen to it, I only hear the horn, which you played. Yes. And when I hear the horn and this kind of story of a town like this, that horn makes me think of Penny Lane, the way it's played in this song, especially Hmm. um, toward the end of it. Not that this song sounds like Penny Lane. I'm not suggesting that. I just, oh, let's play a horn because they did that on Penny Lane or some other, you know, a handful of Beatles songs like that. They use the clock. You hear a ticking clock. Yes. And they use a ticking clock in a day in a life off of the uh, Sergeant Pepper's album. So it's another one of those. They throw some sound effects in here. I think it's a really good song. I do think, again, it's another kind of poppy tune that sounds fabulous musically. And it's about a guy who's either introverted or depressed and doesn't want to leave his house. And that's an interesting thing, <laughs> you know, for a song that sounds so beautiful and so fun to sing. Yeah. This guy is... He's either depressed or an introvert. So, or both. Or both. Or all of it. All of the above. Uh, he needs more pops on hops in his life. He'd be much more cheerful. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Although we didn't leave home today. So who are we? Speak for yourself. Just because I'm home now doesn't mean I didn't leave my house earlier. No, I meant in the sense we're not recording on location. Oh. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't suggesting we didn't leave the house. Let's move on to track five. Track five is called She Still Loves Him.
to capture quite a lot of the musical shifts that happen in this song. Obviously, I could not capture all of them. This is the other one that I thought was grungy. Only certain parts of it, right? Because the beginning starts off with a fairly lengthy... Well, it first starts off with what sounds to be them walking into the studio to record. There's footstep noises. And then there's a fairly lengthy piano and organ solo that gets abruptly cut off by a sort of grungy sounding guitar. And I think that part is so interesting. I don't know if they're just doing what sounds good or if they're making some sort of comment on their musical style, like, oh, we're going to do this traditional piano type of stuff, but we're going to occasionally break in here with some heavy guitars. And I, I thought that was just such an interesting opening to a song that I wouldn't have considered. And the song continues in the grungy guitar vein. It, it doesn't really go back to the piano. There's some triangle dings that we heard in here. I think all of that is lovely. And then after the part I played, there's an amazing guitar solo with like whining and screaming guitar. So I don't know what they were thinking when they wrote this song, but it is a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, it is a beautifully complex crazy song right it goes yeah. all over the place it does it's not in my top three but i really did flirt with this being in my top three it's gosh it's probably number four. Oh wow this song is so attractive to me and i love it a couple of notes on this when you read it it's about domestic violence yeah mm -hmm. so again amazing musical structure that tells a story about a woman who won't leave a abusive relationship. It's crazy when you think about it, when you dive into it. And there's a very, I'm going to give you a really weird time loop here. Can you play like, I think it's the musical bridge. So how about some guitar shredding, huh? Yeah, I know. Pretty great, right? Like it's pretty it came amazing. Came out of there. nowhere. <laughs> now the beginning of that, because it gets a little more intense, I'm going to ask you to pull a very obscure Beatles track called Free as a Bird. And to find this, you're going to have to go to Anthology Volume 1. Oh my. This was a track that they had a demo track of John Lennon that was a rough recording. Have you ever heard this track? I haven't. They had this track, and when they did the anthology series, and I'm talking about the late 90s now, the mm. remaining Beatles got together and recorded around John Lennon's vocal. And it's really interesting. They did two tracks that way. They did this and they did something called Real Love. You should really go mm -hmm. back and listen to both of them because Real Love sounds more like a Beatles song than the one I'm going to ask you to play. The one I'm going to ask you to play is Free as a Bird because there are elements of that in the bridge you just played.
So that was produced by Jeff Lynn, who produced George Harrison's later albums and also worked with him on the Traveling Wilburys. He ah. produced that track and they had a vocal track demo from Lennon and they wrote around that and reconstructed wow. it and wrote that song. And there are elements of that song that I hear in that bridge from She Still Loves Him. So I hear the whole song and She Still Loves Him. Interesting. I, I But here's the here's the time loop. The song I just shared with you was recorded after this. Yeah. <laughs> After she still loves him. But anyway, yeah. if you've not seen the video for Free as a Bird, go check it out on YouTube. It's a kind of a retrospective of the entire Beatles career done very, oh. very well through pseudo photo animation. And it's really well done. Anyway, I'm glad you hear that because. Oh, for sure. I could hear nothing but that. And then I couldn't really go, well, they're not influenced by a song that was recorded six or seven years later. Yeah. That, yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's interesting, right? Yeah. But clearly, I mean, the makings of Free as a Bird were in the Beatles all along. They were influenced by the people who then went on to make Free as a Bird. It sounds like the Beatles. There's no doubt that this sounds like the Beatles. And by the way, I'm going to make you pull another song up. Oh, dear. I'm going backwards in time. You're really earning your uh, spot in the Abigail Homo School of Speaking Smartly About Music. Today. This is a King is Half Undressed reference, and I know you're going to kill me, oh. but I got to do it. On the Revolver album, I need you to pull up Tomorrow Never Knows. And then I'm going to quit with the Abigail Hummel School of Speaking Smartly About oh, Music. Oh, well, don't quit. I need your tuition money. <laughs> I don't think you do. I think Zach does. <laughs> All right, here we go. Tomorrow never knows. So that's the drum track Yeah, that's more relevant to The King is Half Undressed. I'd like to share that with the, with the peoples. I think that's the more relevant drum track I, yeah by the way i want to call out one of my favorite podcasts a history of rock music and 500 songs did a fabulous episode on tomorrow never knows huh. it covers a huge chunk of the beatles career oh wow it's episode number 145 and i learned a ton about the production of that particular song i mean that's why huh. i enjoyed the episode but it covers a piece of the beatles career that makes that song relevant and um the production of that song is fascinating. And that was hmm. the first song, I think the first song produced for the Revolver album. That set the tone for Revolver. Oh, wow. That episode was really, really good. So if anybody has a chance to listen to that, I would certainly recommend it. Okay, let's move on to track six. And track six is called All I Want Is Everything. I think I
song made me think of the processions song sandra in a bizarre way this i know thematically not musically correct yes yeah so this song has a lot of tongue-in-cheek i have everything i could possibly want but i'm so sad and miserable like his parents bought him a ferrari for his birthday and in the verse i played in the clip he's complaining about the price of fame to his french maid luann that to me is exactly the same thematically as Paul's a walkie lying awake in his mansion thinking about Sandra, right? Yeah. So tongue in cheek. Clearly they're in on the joke. I didn't make that connection, but I agree with you that it's a story of a privileged guy who I, I feel like he's saying, I have all these things, but I don't have you. Like he's trying to draw this woman in. Yeah. The upshot is all I want is everything and everything includes you, but you won't have me. Well, and the song is called All I Want is Everything, but the chorus starts off with him saying, all I want to be is wanted, which I think is a different thing than saying all I want is to be wanted. In the next line, he says, all I want to be is wanted by you. Yes. That makes her the everything. Yeah, yeah, Because clearly he has everything else. He has everything else, yes. He has never wanted for anything, but he has never been wanted by the one person that he wants to want him. Right, that's the great irony of the song. And I'm going back to the Abigail School of speaking smartly about music for like two seconds i'm not going to make you pull this because <laughs> otherwise this is going to be like a double header bonus episode right <laughs> which will make joe tarosi happy because this is one of his favorite albums too by the way he is can't it wait. oh yes he can't wait to hear this episode but there's that whole horn kind of it's a cacophony of noise with a horn uh, blowing in the background it's very reminiscent of good morning good morning which is a beatles track on sergeant hmm. peppers we don't need to go play it but I hear that when I hear very specific pieces of this song. That's fun. Yeah. And this is another one where I put a hashtag like this could make the top three as I was going through it and then didn't get a number attached to it. So same here. It's not even on the cusp for number four because I picked a four. But here's another one where I was like, maybe this has got to be in the list. And then it didn't make the list. Yeah, same. No, this is up there for me. It's big. It's fun. It sounds joyful. Yeah, he's singing about the one thing he doesn't have that he wants, but I have a hard time feeling sorry for him. Yeah, he's not a sympathetic character. If that's what certainly not. <laughs> and by the way, this is just a technical thing, but on a vinyl album, this is track one of the second side. So it's a big grand opening to the second side of the album. That actually did remind me of the last thing I wanted to say about All I Want Is Everything was that, so the first verse was about his parents, right? And he said something like, before I was a twinkle in my father's pants, which is an absolutely hilarious <laughs> line. Yes, it is. But my first listen through, I thought he was the result of an unwanted pregnancy. And so my first listen through, I assumed that the first chorus was directed at his parents as in. That's an interesting thing you just pointed out, actually. As in like, you bought me all this stuff. You bought me my Ferrari, but like you never actually wanted to have. Yeah. You know, I couldn't because I've listened to this album so much for 30 something years i didn't have a fresh set of eyes on that you're absolutely right it's almost like a it's a false start like it's a misdirect the way that's written right all i want is to be wanted by my parents right but then he changes gears and it's not about his parents you can guess that because they're throwing around ferraris that He's not an unwanted child. They wouldn't be throwing Ferraris, I don't suspect, an unwanted child. Although, Unless they just didn't really care about getting to know or spend time with their child and they bought him off. 
with fancy gifts and toys, including a Ferrari, which, you know, does happen. You're making my head hurt. Well, should we rate our second beer? We better because I have this much left to give you the final assessment. I have quite a bit left. I always forget we're doing this when we have tall boys, like out of sight, out of mind type of thing. I know. So here's my assessment of this one. It's a very easy to drink beer. I could drink this and drink a lot of it at a stadium. While watching soccer. But I'm going to give it a 375 because I liked it. I would drink it over and over and over again in the right venues. There's nothing to special about it to push it up to a four for me. So I'm in for a 375. I agree 100%. I'm going to give it a 3.5. And I like wheat beers, but I like Hefeweizen's less. Because I'm not really a big banana person. The <laughs> fact that Hefeweizens all tend to have a slight banana-y flavor. It's just not my favorite. I am a banana person, but oddly, I'm not a big time Hefeweizen. I happen to think that was a very good Hefeweizen. It's certainly easy to drink. Yeah, and maybe part of the reason I like that better is because it did end up a little more in the pale ale category at the end. But I've said this a lot lately. You know, we've had some really good beers and some categories that I'm a huge fan of in recent weeks. We've had some great Pilsners. Oh, yeah, we have. We didn't review this Pilsner on the podcast, but when we were in Canada, we went to Steam Whistle Brewing. It was in the shadow of the CN Tower and the baseball stadium. You walk in and they go, we make Pilsner. Yeah. That's it. They had two beers on tap. Two beers and a pretzel. Steam Whistle Pilsner and Steam Whistle Pilsner Unfiltered. That was it. And they were fabulous. They were fabulous. So we've had several very good beers in categories that I'm a huge fan of. This is one of those. This is, I'm not a big half a Weizen guy. I drink them. I drink everything. Yeah. Because that's my job. I'm on the Pops on Hops podcast. That's your job. It's not my day job, but it's my podcast job. You drank everything before it was your job. Don't even. Well, I had to do that. You know, it's like putting the 10,000 hours into being an expert. You got to yep. have it all. So we're moving on to the Nuclear Seahorse. It's a hazy double IPA from Boonshine Brewing. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Double. We got the word double. She's been triggered. Let me read the uh, arts and crafts version of the explanation that's on the can. As elusive as the hellbender and as rare as the pegasus. Our nuclear seahorse is a hazy celebration of all things hoppy. Oh, boy. Harnessing its power from a blend of local North Carolina barley, toasted oats, and new school American hops. This unique hazy emerges from the depths with aromas of white grape and pear, floral tea, and ripe tangerine. Not just tangerine, Abigail. Ripe tangerine. This radioactive sea puppy is so smoothly hoppy, it's practically hazardous material. Cheers. Oh, boy. (laughs) I don't know whether to be scared or excited. This can is also absolutely gorgeous. It's like a two-headed seahorse. And then there's a little sign that says, caution, radioactive hops. All three of the beers we have had today have included some local North Carolina ingredients. So that's pretty cool. All right. What do you got? What are you thinking? I have to take a sip. I think it's lovely. You know what? That's not half bad. I don't think that's a favorable reception. I feel like I've had a lot of double IPAs. They either lean way into the hoppy or they lean way into the sweet so that it is palatable to people who aren't like the biggest hop heads. This is very well balanced. It is not too sweet. Now, again, let, let's let it warm up a little bit. But right now, fresh from the cooler, it is not too sweet. And if I were going to have a double IPA, 
in a tall boy such as this one. I would almost rather it air on the side of too hoppy because it's easy to take that first sip of a double IPA that's too sweet and kind of be tricked into thinking you're going to like it. It's easier to identify that you're not going to like a super, super hoppy double IPA or that I'm not going to like a super, super hoppy double IPA on the first sip. But this is neither too hoppy nor too sweet. I'm hoping it doesn't get any sweeter than what it is now because it's really nice as it is. I don't get any of the flavors they listed yet. Again, let's let it warm up. But for a double IPA, it's pretty smooth. It's pretty easy to drink. I agree with you. The sweetness is very subtle. And the hop flavor is a flavor, not a uh, barn burning, rip your face off, bitter or piney taste. And I think if I was going to identify the sweetness out of that first sip, I'd say white grape. I don't taste pear. So we'll see when it warms up. But my first impression of this is that I like it very, very much. And that holds. I mean, everything I had when I was at the site was excellent. And everything I've had today has been excellent. And so I'm not shocked. We are now moving on to track seven. Track seven is called Now She Knows She's Wrong. It's not the same without him here. 20 years of him dead and gone. This vodka doesn't mend we clear Though it's too hard to imagine what these tears are for wish I could have played the whole song. This song is two minutes and 35 seconds in length. And I wish it were 20 minutes and 35 seconds in length. This is my favorite song on the album. It's my second favorite. So we flipped the top two, right? We did. I'm absolutely obsessed with this song. It's fast and furious. I love the intro to the chorus. Between the verse and the chorus, when there's just drumming and some bells. Yeah, yeah. I love when bells are in a song because it makes me think of Christmas. And so it's kind of my little trick to getting through November when I have sort of like a moral thing against listening to Christmas music, but I'm still like starting to get in the spirit. So I listen to a lot of songs with bells in them. (laughs) I have a playlist called How to Survive November, and I'm putting this one on it. (laughs) And it's just songs with bells in them. Will you be sharing that with the peeps? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, you got to put that list up. (laughs) How to Survive November. I love this song. First of all, I love the harpsichord. Again, that makes me think of the Beatles, right? Songs like Fixing a Hole and other things where they use the harpsichord. It's the only use of the harpsichord that isn't a horror or Adam's Family kind of. Yeah, yeah. Is the Beatles and now this one. Again, it's this most cheerful, delightful song about a cheating partner. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I hate that he's singing about all these horrible things that he's done, but the chorus and the title are now she knows she's wrong. And it's like, why are we focusing on her? Exactly. Why are we blaming her for being in the wrong? Because the people who write history control it, Abigail. You know that. (laughs) And it has my favorite line of the whole album. Wow. He juggled his honesty with two balls and an alibi. That's, yeah. I'm almost going to have Pete Co. write me a jingle that says, it's Barry Hummel's favorite lyric of the album. <laughs> because I do it every album. This is it. Yeah. This is my favorite yeah. one. I think that is a fantastic line. 
again, one and two are almost interchangeable for me. And yeah, I'm fascinated you landed on the same two. I mean, they're they're just the best. They're just the best. Super fun song. And again, you know, I came to it, you know, I heard this in 1990. To me, it was the most Beatles-like album I'd ever heard. Now, we listened to the Billy Joel album. Yeah. That has a lot of Beatles references in it. Yeah. And it's fun to go through there and pick those out. But when you listen to that album, your first impression of, and I'm talking about the Nylon Curtain now, your first impression is not, this is a Beatles album. You can see the Beatles influence. When I listen to this album, I go, oh, this is like an extra Beatles album Mm -hmm. to me. And so when I listened to it, it really pulled at my heartstrings. Remember, we're only 10 years after John Lennon's death when this album comes out. Mm -hmm. They're not capable of performing together again. Right. And then I hear this album that makes me think of like, this is what could have been. And so I have a great emotional attachment to this album. And this song's a great example of that. It's funny you should bring up Billy Joel because I'm actually going to play a Billy Joel song that to me, this song sounds like just a slightly faster version of. This song we're yes. talking about? Get out of here. Is this the Abigail Hummel School of Speaking Smartly <laughs> About Music? You know it is. I warned you about this. And the reason, so I was going to play, my favorite part of this song is actually from the bridge to the last two choruses because we get the best harmonies in there. And I love when both choruses are back to back so you can hear the differences between the choruses. But I did not play that section of the song because I played the beginning because I think it sounds like this Billy Joel song. So I'm going to play a little bit of Vienna by Billy Joel. so ambitious for a juvenile but then if you're so smart tell me why are you still so afraid mm-hmm. where's the fire what's the hurry about you better cool it off before you burn it out you got so much to do and only so many hours in a day hey but you know that when the truth I think he sounds so, so similar to Billy Joel in Now She Knows She's Wrong. I even think his voice sounds like Billy Joel. And the piano and the melody, I think it's just a slightly faster version of Vienna. It's not the same without him here. 20 years of him dead and gone. This vodka does a memory clear. If you traded that harpsichord for a more traditional piano, yes. the melodies are and the vocals. I and totally the vocals, agree with you. It sounds so similar, but the, the reason why I could identify it as Vienna was that I was singing "Slow Down, You Crazy Child." I just knew it. I knew it instantly. I didn't have to think about it. I just knew That's it. That's crazy. Your knowledge of music is starting to scare me. Really? I'm, I'm frightened. No, you're not. I feel like I've created a monster that's going to consume the earth and I'm not going to be included in that version of the world. Well, just wait till I do another um, mystify. Um, yeah. 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 Well, no, no. Today it's coming up. It's in two songs. Oh, no. Sh- <laughs> what? Just you wait. Okay. With that little teaser, let's move on to track eight. 
Bedspring Kiss. Here's a when she sealed it with a bedspring kiss And when her time had come to go Jimmy washed all of the blood stains from the blood oh, oh. And with a needle in his vein He knew he could not explain Just what it all means to me is the one that sounds sort of Spanish or Latin inspired with the rhythm of it and some of the instrumentation they're using. This is my least favorite song. Shock of all shocks. My least favorite as well. Yeah. I'm not surprised. It is the longest song on the album. It is the slowest song on the album. And I think it runs a little too long. They had an opportunity, I think in the middle, because there is a bit of a breakdown with like a cool slow part in the middle and it sounds like it's building up to something and then it just goes back to more of the same i think they missed an opportunity there to really end it on a more interesting note that may have improved it in my head but it's also about what seems to be a violent murder and yeah uh, uh, yeah a murder there's or an overdose. It seems to be drug addiction references. It's a really dark lyrical it's song. Very dark. By the way, that's not why I put it in the bottom. First of all, I told you, I think this is a flawless album. This song, I like this song, but in going through and going, well, I have to peg one. I feel like this is the obvious choice. It's not because of the lyrics. I made that decision well before I really dove into the lyrics and I've been singing this song for years, right? And I didn't realize the violence of it. Jimmy washed all of the bloodstains from her clothes is the summary line of the song, right? But I can't tell if, did she overdose? Were they drug users where she overdosed? And he was kind of, and I'm just vamping here. I don't know what the song was about. You said you felt it had Latin influences. And I do hear that. I heard Eastern music influences. I didn't Hmm. hear Latin influences. And I was thinking it was like a George song without the sitar being very prominent. It's got that kind of musical. It, it feels like foreign music one way or the other. This is one where there's a use of a theremin in it. I can't recall if you played this to highlight it real quick. Can you find it? All right, let's find it. glad you asked me to play that part because I did write down the spooky sounds. They're like ghost sounds. That's the theremin. Again, I'm going to give a plug to A History of Rock Music and 500 Songs. There's a great episode on the Beach Boys and their use of the theremin in good vibrations. Hmm. It tells in that episode the history of the theremin. Oh, wow. Like the guy starts the episode talking about the development of the theremin and how the beach boys discovered it and it's really interesting it's an electronically driven instrument that you don't even contact you wave your hands and it's picking up the electrical vibrations of your hands so it's a slide instrument you play without touching it developed by 
some sort of electrical engineer or some it's, it's a very weird story and it's well worth a listen and i will dig up the episode number and we will get that in the show notes and so when i heard that spooky sound that you're referring to i knew exactly what it was because of listening to that episode on the beach boys like it just makes me think of x files <laughs> The other reason I'm glad that you asked me to play that section is because that's the section I was talking about where there's that breakdown of, and there's a slower part and then it builds. We heard the build and then it goes right back to more of the same music, except yeah, now the theremin's added, but that doesn't change the fact that they could have used that build to build to something else and they didn't. So that's my major beef with the song. But it's a structurally a lot like the other songs where they did a weird musical bridge that called some historical instruments into play. We've talked about harpsichord. We've talked about organ. We've talked about theremins. We've talked about bells. We've talked about some digital tricks like the sound of a record spinning. Mm -hmm. And they tend to, in the bridge, pull some sort of parlor trick out. Mm -hmm. And in this song, they pulled out the parlor trick of the theremin, right? That's sort of the style or the structure of the songs. That's a good way to describe it, the parlor trick. But I can't for the life of me find this episode number. I'll send it to you later, but it's the episode on, for sure, Good Vibrations. In fact, why don't you go find Good Vibrations and play? So Good Vibrations just so happens to be my canonical favorite summer song canonically good vibrations is your favorite summer song if i have enough time i'll go find the new jersey beach video where i used good vibrations and you are maybe two in fact you're not two because we went to new jersey that year before you turned to because i could still have you as a lap baby and it saved me half the ticket oh price. wow so we went that august before you turned two years old specifically because i'm a cheapskate <laughs> Except on the Pops on Hops tab. Should we hear a little bit of good vibrations? <laughs> if you hold it up. Spooky. They were fascinated by that. And there's a long, complicated story of how it ended up on that song. And you really should listen to that episode of A History of Rock and 500 Songs hosted by Andrew Hickey. I feel like I'm going to tag him in this episode when it goes up because we've referenced him like on multiple songs today. So yeah. I will alert the media, what the media, the social media that we talked about him today. Well, let's move on to track nine. Track nine is called Babies Coming Back. Saw that my life would soon move over from the fast lane. Gone would be the days of all my drinking and my carrying on. But when I settled down, the party king and crown, this stubborn memory hadn't faded. Too many dumb mistakes and all the grief it makes left nothing else to be debated. And if you say that you understand. 
find this song so fun. Thematically, it reminds me very much of, speaking of Billy Joel, speaking of Nylon Curtain, she's right on time because his woman's coming home and he's maybe not been on his best behavior while she's been gone. But musically, it reminded me very distinctly of another song, which I'm going to reveal to you by singing over Baby's Coming Back, and then I will play the original. Oh my God, that's complicated. We're doing a uh, mystify uh, fever mash type mashup again. I, I better look good because I might have to share this video on the socials. <laughs> let me get let me let me get my hat on for this one. Oh God, not your hat! <laughs> Ready? I think. This thing called love. I just can't handle it. This thing. Called love, I must get around to it. I ain't ready. Crazy little thing called love. Did you hear it? Quite obviously, that was Crazy Little Thing Called Love by Queen. So now I will play a little bit of the song Crazy Little Thing Called Love by Queen. I mean, the guitar, the drums, it's exactly the same. Baby's Coming Back is just marginally slower than Crazy Little Things. But I have always heard them as the same song. And as I said before, when they did Spilt Milk, most people said, oh, it seems like the influence is Queen on that second album that they did, mm -hmm. which is interesting. The thing I thought was fascinating about this, there's a calliope use. It's very Bing for the benefit of Mr. Kite. No, I didn't pick up on that. Let's try and find it. I love it. And I love that they actually knock three times. That's so fun. And they actually clap, by the way. I just want to point out that's not digital. Oh, well, good for them. <laughs> so glad that's the priority. As that calliope comes up, I could only hear being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. So your call on the Queen stuff is interesting because I came into this going Beatles, Beatles, Beach Boys, Beach Boys, Beatles, Monkeys, Beatles. I didn't come out of it with any additional source material, but it's clearly in there. Yeah. This is my third favorite song on the album. That's a good choice. Yeah, it's a fabulous, fabulous song. And it goes all over the place. It's an up-tempo song. It's got all kinds of musical diversions in it. When you listen to it lyrically, it's another guy who keeps screwing up in his relationship and mm -hmm. this woman who keeps returning. There's these kind of darker themes lyrically, but none of that is revealed in the music. The music's all uplifting and all positive. Mm -hmm. We always talk about how I've been trying to find music for years and years and years that sounds like music that I like that's new. And this is a great example of that. And I wasn't that old when this album came out, but I was 20 years removed from the Beatles releasing anything new. And this sounds like the Beatles, which is something that I loved. So this comes out and it's a classic example of an album that I jumped on because of that. And when you actually read the lyrics, they're fairly dark. Well, should we do the last song on the album? 
I'm sad it's almost over. Well, you can always play it again. (laughs) All right, let's do the last track, and this is called Calling Sarah. might be the most straightforwardly uncomplicatedly positive song on the album it and is it's in, and it's in the last spot <laughs> but don't you feel like it has to be like musically structurally the way the music is especially the way it ends don't you feel like this has to be the last song i think it's a great last song it's i do the best example of a closing track you can have it's not even slower tempo the way they kind of wind it down is yeah. just brilliant as a closing yes. track i call this more traditional instrumentation there's no real surprises in this song i agree and maybe that's because it's track 10 and at this point i'm sort of used to jellyfish being jellyfish right (laughs) i'm used to jellyfish being jellyfish is perhaps the most profound thing you said all day. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I feel like they didn't throw any curveballs in this song, which I'm not against that. I think it is a perfectly placed final track. It's like you have stuck with us through all of this absurd nonsense that we've tried to do on this album. And we're going to gift you with just a nice, pretty, simple pop love song. That's a fun way to look at it. I was thinking more of the fact that they do this thing with the organ as they kind of play themselves out at the end. And Mm. it's a long outro with a fade on it that just is a great play that actually. I I think we, I think play that tail end of that coming out of the last chorus. Sure. I just think that's a brilliant way to close an album. It's lovely. You put that there to end not only the song, but the album, right? Beautiful harmonies in that one. The part we just played with the back of vocalist just going, do, 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 do. Like, it's beautiful. I love it. And I love this whole album. And I cannot believe that I hadn't explored it before because it is just so up my alley. And I must thank you now for adding it to the Pops on Hops canon. I know I've played this around you. I would have had to have played this around you. I, I told you at the beginning of the episode, if somebody said, you have to go somewhere and you can only take 10 albums with you, mm-hmm. this would make my list. I know we're 39 episodes into this. Yeah. And this is an album that I had pigeonholed. You know, I'm doing it kind of chronologically. I could not wait to get to this album i totally see why so this is my 
oh, I discovered the band that's going to replace the Beatles. Mm. And they didn't because they flamed out. My whole musical journey has been to find what are the replacement parts for legacy bands? What's the next generation of the guys who sound like people that I love? And when I heard this, I was like, this is it. These guys are going to have this long career and produce these amazing things. And it didn't happen. It's so sad. It's very, very sad. But that's why I hold this album in such high esteem. And I'm so glad that you liked it on the same level that I liked it. Yeah, I, I loved it. And that's exactly why I am going completely off the rails with my next choice. What? But before we do that, we have to read a beer. So let's do that. All right. So we're rating the nuclear seahorse, which I love on so many levels, including the double-headed seahorse on the can. The fact that it's a hazy double IPA, which is my wheelhouse. I'm going with a four on this one. Yeah, I think it's definitely gotten a little sweeter as it's warmed up, but it's still not too sweet for me. Weirdly enough, I'm getting kind of a caramelly flavor. Uh, let me take another sip. I doubt it, but let me see. <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah, I'm still not getting that. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, well, I think I will give this a 3.75. That's pretty good for you. Anything with double in it with a 3.75, that's extreme like. And it's extreme like. <laughs> it's not love, it's extreme like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good selection today, Dad. I'm not even mad that I didn't actually get to pick the beer. I'm not even upset about that. Well, do you want to pick the beer for the next one in trade? Yes, and great segue because I actually am not picking an album for our next episode. Well, no, well, that's, I'm not. Yes, correct. You are not, and I am not. I am bringing in a guest. Oh, Jesus. A guest who you not only know and theoretically love. What does that mean? Theoretically love? <laughs> yeah, well, I can't speak for you, but I, I was like- Is mom coming on again? Uh, no, Zach is. Again. What? He's coming on again. Oh, my God. I chose Smoke and Mirrors by Imagine Dragons. I just asked him to be part of the recording. For this one, I asked Zach to choose an album for us. So, Oh, so you phoned a friend the way I had mom do the... Yes. I uh, gotcha. Okay. And he chose Under Pressure by Logic, which is a hip-hop album. So we are going to have... Our first appearance. Well, it's it's not his first appearance. No, it, it makes him a member of the Three Timers Club, for God's sake. And all that's in the last five episodes. Oh, God. Are we allowed to do that? I don't know. You picked it. But am I wrong? I didn't like think he about was... the implications. No, he is in the Three Timers Club, or he will be. All right. Well, that means he gets invited to the Christmas episode? Of course. Yeah. It's going to be Matt Carlson. It's going to be Paul Zawaki and, and Zachary That should be fun. All right. So he's in the Three Timers Club for a hip-hop album called Under Pressure, did you say? Under Pressure by Logic. And the artist is Logic. Okay. I will dig that up. Not the deluxe edition. Specifically not the deluxe edition. We joked early on that Zach was going to be our hip-hop consultant. And he's finally stepping into that role. So I'm pretty excited. You know me, I'll take any challenge on and I think that's fine. I got no beef with that. All right, great. Just the fact that it's just been on like twice in five he's weeks. He's taken the pod by storm. Anyway, 
Under pressure, my logic will go with that. In the meantime, you can find us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at Pops on Hops Pod, or you can email us at popsonhopspod at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening to this, there should be a link in the show notes to leave us a voice message if that's something that interests you. Or you can visit our very cool website, popsonhopspod.com, where we include bonus photos, videos, and other material relevant to each of our bi-weekly episodes. Or you can submit an album to our virtual jukebox for a chance to appear on the pod. And on behalf of Hops. And Pops. We'll see you next time. When I realize the flight that's firmly on my flight board. On my flight board. I just try and find the place. I can take a seat on my bar stool. On my bar stool. Bye. I'm going to play a jelly a, a jelly bowl. A what? <laughs> if you play a jelly bowl, that's going to be really rare find. Is that on Spotify? A jelly bowl. A jelly bowl. Oh my god! Can we please make a Billy Joel cover band called Jelly Bowl? Why has no one done that? I don't know, but I went to one of these Hawaiian pokey places and ordered a jelly bowl just the other night. Oh, stop it.